You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. The scandal was too much to bear. Everyone in the parish knew what had happened. The only saving grace was that the man knew his wife would never leave him of her own accord. All the same, his beloved Gita was gone. She had been gone for some time now, though everyone knew where she was. Shameful, they whispered. It was bad enough she was living with another man, but rumors had lately begun to circulate that she was pregnant. Worst of all, the child's father was none other than their own parish priest. How could a priest have managed to lure poor Gita away from her husband? Surely, she was under a most demonic curse. It was with this in mind that Gita's husband, Bianchino, appeared before the court of the Bishop of Lucca in 1359 to denounce Father Puccinello, his parish priest. The priest, according to Bianchino, is a man of evil condition and reputation, and against law and justice and against Bianchino's will, he held Bianchino's wife Gita by force, knowing her carnally and committing adultery with her many, many times, doing all this against Gita's will. He, like a heretic and against the faith, made a certain incantation over Gita, so that, against her will, Gita went with Father Puccinello, and he led her to his house." Thus begins the case against Puccinello, rector of the court of Sant'Andrea in Tempagnano, a small town in the Diocese of Lucca in Tuscany. When Puccinello denied that he had anything to do with abducting Gita, Bianchino introduced witnesses to testify against the priest. One witness testified that Puccinello was a man of foul condition and life, and evil testimony is given about him that it is public and notorious that Gita went to him and that she is pregnant by him, and that this witness had heard from Gita that she is pregnant by him. Though he confessed he had not seen Gita and the priest together, he said that it was common knowledge that Gita is pregnant by that priest and that she is cursed by him. Despite the fact that he insisted Gita was under an enchantment, The witness testified that others have denounced her infamous crime in the court of the rectors of Lucca. Instead of refuting the testimony against him, Puccinello shrugged it off, saying all witnesses were Bianchino's relatives and friends. Besides, priests were exempted from the testimony of lay persons by law, and unless a fellow cleric had anything to say about it, the court was required to dismiss all charges against him. He was right, of course, and the bishop's representative cleared the priest of all charges and dismissed Bianchino's case. But this was neither the first nor the last time that the magistrates of 14th century Lucca would hear that someone under their jurisdiction had been lured away from their spouse by the use of magic. Attitudes about magic varied widely in the Middle Ages. Late antiquity saw a general distrust of magic as a pagan and potentially demonic practice. 
both St. Augustine and St. Isidore of Seville believed that all magic was by nature demonic, especially the art of divination. By the 13th century, however, some scholars like William of Auvergne and Albert the Great saw natural magic as separate from demonic. Natural magic encompassed the investigation and use of the natural properties of earthly materials, involving disciplines, like alchemy, that would come to be understood as science. Healing or beneficial magic, especially those forms that use the natural powers of herbs, stones, and so forth, was largely tolerated. The more mysterious learned magic, ritual forms of magic that required extensive knowledge of Latin and the wealth to acquire obscure magical texts, underwent more stringent critique, since it was unclear whether the spirits it purported to summon were angelic or demonic. The invocation of demons, or necromancy, was mostly associated with priests and other clerics, whose education and inherent connection to the divine would facilitate the summoning of spirits. In 14th century Italy, magic, like many other disciplines, was undergoing a renaissance. With the recovery of ancient magical and alchemical texts, the possibility of applying newly discovered principles to current theory and practice tempted many scholars. But enthusiasm for magical study among some raised suspicions among others. When authorities did decide to pursue and prosecute magical practitioners, it was because the results of their magic proved intolerable. Aside from curses meant to cause illness, injury, or death, love magic, used to seduce the object of the magician's desire, was among the more problematic forms. In a highly patriarchal society like late medieval Italy, some women may have viewed love spells as a way to enact their own will and take control of their own romantic lives. But when the object of their affections was already married, the real problems began. Today, you're going to hear the story of four cases I discovered while researching in the archives of medieval Lucca. It's an ancient city, founded by the Etruscans centuries before becoming a Roman settlement in the 2nd century BCE. During the Middle Ages, Lucca was a powerful republic, competing with the cities of Florence and Pisa for dominance over the Tuscan countryside. But by the 14th century, a series of misfortunes and political crises left Lucca desperately clinging to its independence. Soon, this desperation would lead to a crackdown on magic. By the late Middle Ages, magic increasingly concerned lawmakers and theologians throughout Europe as a force that was potentially both demonic and seductive. The many crises of the 14th century inspired expressions of apocalyptic thought, and the Inquisition combined anxieties about magic and heresy to construct the modern concept of witchcraft. This may have arisen from the increasing distrust of church and state institutions as the crises of the 14th century raged. Neither royal intervention nor prayer was able to alleviate the problems of starvation and disease resulting from the pan-European demographic crises of the Great Famine and the Black Death. The spiritual and political crises of the Avignon Papacy and the subsequent Great Schism 
when two rival popes each claimed legitimacy, going so far as to excommunicate the other and all his followers, undermined the credibility of the Church and its authority. On a local level, the mid-14th century saw the occupation of Lucca by the neighboring rival city of Pisa. During this time, Lucca increased its vigilance against public disturbances. The desire to restore order in the midst of crisis motivated both church and state authorities to suppress social and political disturbance. In this context, the sorcerer, who operated outside of ordinary institutions of power, was especially worrisome. Medieval Italian women, by definition, occupied a position outside of public power, and thus were regarded with particular suspicion. Associated most often with natural magic, women were often accused of employing incantations, prayers, potions, and wax figures. In its 1359 case against Bartolomea, widow of Fedone of San Lorenzo of Acoli, and daughter of the late Bartolomeo of Florence, the court of the Bishop of Lucca stated that for two years, Bartolomea, in grave peril to her soul, risking the loss of her salvation and causing the inestimable harm of blame and reproach to Ciuchino del Fu Vanucci and his wife Bella, as a magician and enchantress remained and cohabited with Ciuchino, committing adultery with him day and night, often and continuously, and by him she conceived and gave birth to a daughter, and she is said to be pregnant now. It's unclear how the court learned about Bartolomea's alleged seduction of Ciuchino by magic. It's possible that Bella complained, but it's more likely that neighborhood rumor alerted the court. The people of San Lorenzo of Acoli could perhaps dismiss one illegitimate child as the unfortunate product of a brief affair, but a second implied that Ciuchino and Bartolomea were setting up a more permanent household. The record goes on to say that Bartolomea performed harmful magic and other enchantments, on account of which Ciuchino, like one accursed, did not and does not wish to remain with his wife, but has expelled her from his bed and home and lives with Bartolomea, as has been said, and he has often visited harsh and intolerable beatings on his innocent wife, Bella. The court called six witnesses to testify, all men from San Lorenzo of Acoli. The first witness, Nicolao Schiavone, testified that all this was true and that he had heard that Bartolomea cast a spell on Ciuchino. He also testified that Ciuchino had recently thrown his wife Bella, quote, who is younger and prettier than Bartolomea, out of the house, and that Ciuchino has lain with Bartolomea and lives with her. Finally, Nicolao told the court that he believed Bartolomea would ignore the summons and instead flee with Ciuchino. The other witnesses echoed these statements, testifying that all this was true, that Ciuchino and Bartolomea had slept together, and that they had heard it said that Bartolomea is a sorceress and lives an evil life, and that Ciuchino does not know himself, and that he is enchanted or cursed. Despite Nicolao's misgivings that Bartolomea would run, she answered the court summons and confessed that she had had an affair and lived with Ciuchino for the last two years, and by him she conceived and had a daughter, and that she is now pregnant. 
However, she denied all charges involving magic. The judge of the Episcopal Court ordered her imprisoned and remanded her to the custody of the Episcopal Prison of Lucca. After more deliberation, the court finally pronounced its judgment. Neither seeing nor knowing Bartolomea to be guilty of harmful magic, namely in casting some incantations or evil spells on Chukino, on pain of excommunication and perpetual imprisonment, he commanded Bartolomea to neither live nor spend time with Chukino, or to remain or travel within five miles of the commune of Vacoli. Bartolomea swore to obey the judgment with her hand on the Gospels, and the judge ordered her release. Barring eyewitness testimony, it was difficult to prove the use of magic without a confession. Without proof of sorcery, the real issue became adultery and the disorder Bartolomea and Chukino caused with their affair. Rather than pursue the charges of sorcery further, the court achieved its goal by banishing the source of this disorder. Outside of the bishop's jurisdiction, a case similar to Bartolomea's appeared in the court of the Podesta, the civic authority of Lucca. This 1361 case charged Nicoloza, daughter of the late Giovanni of Lucca, and Nieza, wife of Lupardo of Lucca, with the use of magic to seduce a married man. The record states that while Nicoloza lived with Nieza, she asked, quote, if Nieza would teach Nicoloza some spells to cast on Bartolomeo, son of the late Calino of Lucca, so that Bartolomeo might love and be led to desire Nicoloza, and thus Bartolomeo might leave his wife. Nieza agreed, and according to the record, she took a wax candle with which a certain virgin boy had been buried, saying an Our Father and a Hail Mary, and other things which are now not to be spoken of. After saying and doing these things, Nieza broke the candle in two and gave it to Nicoloza, saying, Give this candle to Bartolomeo, and he will bring and keep the candle in his house. And once he brings and keeps the candle in his house, he will neither love his wife nor enjoy her, but will love and spend time with Nicoloza. And all these things happened as Nieza predicted. The charges here reveal the complexity of medieval understandings of magic. The elements involved in this ritual are at once necromantic, the candle buried with a virgin boy, sacred, the recitation of an Our Father and a Hail Mary, and occult, the other unrepeatable incantations. There is no clear distinction here between Christian ritual and magic. Nicoloza then, quote, asked Nieza to cast other spells on Bartolomeo, beyond the spells that Nieza and Nicoloza had already done. Nieza agreed and told Nicoloza that she should take a glass bowl and place in it three parts water, three parts wine, and three drops of her menstrual blood. And when all this had been mixed together in the bowl, she should give it to Bartolomeo to drink. 
Hearing this, Nicoloza requested that Nieza arrange matters so that Nicoloza could sleep with Bartolomeo at his house one night. Nicoloza went to Bartolomeo's house and asked him if he wanted to drink with her. When he agreed, Nicoloza gave him the bowl and other enchanted objects. He took the bowl and drank everything mixed in the bowl, believing it to be only water and wine. The two then slept together the whole night in the garden of his home. Bartolomeo forgot his wife and slept with Nicoloza because of the spells Nieza had taught her. There is no record of witness testimony against the two women. Instead, the record of the sentence states that Nicoloza and Nieza had fled Luca, and that if they did not appear to defend themselves within ten days, they were to be declared contumacious, guilty by default, and sentenced to death by fire. What's striking in the cases of these women is the lack of demonic invocation, pacts with the devil, or any of the diabolical elements that would later be associated with early modern witchcraft. But women weren't the only people suspected of using magic in 14th century Lucca. Unlike women, priests were thought to have special occult knowledge. Priests fell under suspicion as stewards of divine power, and were more likely to be accused of necromancy. In the 1352 case against Father Giusto, rector of the Church of Sant'Andrea de Monte Carlo in the Diocese of Lucca, the record accuses him of seducing a married woman when Wishing to follow his desire through demonic invocation and the magical art, he compelled Nuta, wife of Corsino Pardonis of Monte Carlo, and through force and fear took her from her house to his and knew her carnally many times, committing adultery with her for 22 days. In addition, Giusto was charged with having baptized an infant boy, Coluccio Bianchi of Monte Carlo, saying, I baptize you in the name of the devil in the church of Monte Carlo some two years prior. Giusto confessed to all charges against him and was fined 50 gold florins, later reported to have been paid in full, banned from all ecclesiastical office, and condemned to three years in the Episcopal prison, after which time he was banished from Lucca on pain of perpetual imprisonment. Rather than resort to herbs, potions, candles, or other natural tools, Giusto stood accused of using his learning and special priestly power to invoke demons in order to fulfill his desire for Nuta. Nuta herself appears as an unwilling participant, which reveals two potential uses of magic accusations, to vilify the accused and to absolve the victim of any possible wrongdoing. We've already seen the case against Father Puccinello, the priest who stood accused of seducing Gita, wife of Bianchino Nucori, by enchantment. We've also seen how eager the bishop's court was to dismiss the charges against him on the grounds that lay men had no power over clerics. So why were women and priests more likely to be accused of sorcery than lay men? The answer lay in the structures of power in late medieval Italy. 
women were not permitted into the arena of public power occupied by lay men, especially in republics like Florence and Lucca. And neither, ideally, were priests. Models of secular masculinity measured a man's ability to govern a household, defend his honor, sometimes with violence, produce heirs, and accumulate and transfer power and property. However, since medieval clerics were ideally celibate and forbidden from carrying weapons, they instead emphasized their education, intelligence, and sexual and emotional self-control as markers of their masculinity. But as their rivalry for power and jurisdiction with civic authorities grew in the late Middle Ages, clerics fell victim to harsh critiques. Lay male critics invented feminized stereotypes that mocked clerics' modes of dress and assigned to them a proclivity for gossip and feminine modes of speech. Late medieval anti-clericalism also assigned to clerics the uncontrollable sexual desires considered characteristic of women yielding the stereotype of the oversexed priest, who was usually fond of pretty young wives. Priests did, in fact, enjoy an intimate access to married women that was denied to most men. And, as with women, what priests did in private was a mystery to most lay men. These ties in the popular imagination between priests, women, sexuality, and mystery all contributed to the likelihood of magic accusations against both women and priests. But why bring magic into it at all? The charge of magic could serve several different purposes. First, magic helped to vilify the defendants. The accusations against Justo made him more than a bad priest. They made him an invoker of demons. Second, magic helped friends, family, and neighbors explain behaviors they just couldn't understand. Magic helped Nicolao Schiavone make sense of Chuchino leaving his younger and prettier wife for Botolomea. Finally, and most importantly, it allowed the enchanted parties and their spouses to save face in the midst of humiliating public revelations. In the case against Father Puccinello, Bianchino emphatically claimed the priest took his wife by force and against her will, absolving Gita of the crime of adultery. Without magic, Bartolomea's case is a clear-cut instance of a man leaving his wife, in an especially violent way, for another woman. Without magic, Ciuchino freely and knowingly fathered two illegitimate children with Bartolomea. But... If he was enchanted, and his free will was impaired, well, he couldn't reasonably be held responsible for his actions. Friends and neighbors could shrug their shoulders, forgive his misdeeds, and readmit him into the community. Of course, this required Bartolomea to shoulder the blame and go into exile. The small number of cases involving charges of magic just this handful among hundreds of criminal cases in the courts of the bishop and podesta of Lucca over several decades, is in itself revealing. Judicial officials acted on allegations of magic when it destroyed the order of the household and, by extension, civic order. Anxieties about magic focused on women or clergy potentially using magic to alter the social or political order, Women using magic to control men's behavior inverted the proper power relationship between the genders. 
Priests, using magic to steal women away from their lay male parishioners, reversed the priest's position as a shepherd of his flock and revealed the real competition for masculine authority between clergy and laity. If these judicial officials feared magic, it was because they feared its power to disrupt and overturn the proper order of things. By the end of the 14th century, the increasing distrust of all magic as heretical and demonic would culminate in the development of the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, the infamous manual for inquisitors charged with the discovery and elimination of witchcraft. In one section, the manual explains to its readers why witches are overwhelmingly female. Some teachers say there are three things in nature, the tongue, a cleric, and a woman, that know no moderation, whether in kindness or in malice. And when an evil spirit takes them, the malicious things they do are the very worst. What else is a woman but an enemy of friendship, an inescapable punishment, a necessary evil, a natural temptation, a desirable disaster, a domestic danger, a delight that does damage, and an evil of nature painted in pretty colors. To those who understand, it is plain enough and no surprise that more women than men are found to be infected with heresy of witchcraft. Accordingly, this heresy should be named for witches, not sorcerers, taking its designation from the more potent source. And blessed be the Most High who, up to now, has kept the male sex away from so great a disgrace. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about these cases of magic in medieval Lucca, we've posted a link to my article, The Charms of Women and Priests, Sex, Magic, Gender, and Public Order in Late Medieval Italy, on the website. This week's episode was produced by Corinne Wieben, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, just $5 a month gives you access to exclusive bonus content, sneak previews of what's ahead, and early access to upcoming episodes. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.